and some of the more profound and significant purposes and reasons why this shift takes place in the purpose of these parables. Okay? So what I want to do for us is walk us briefly through the Gospel of Matthew beginning in chapter 1. And this is very brief. So don't think this is going to take long at all. So just notice in chapter 1, get, us, get our bearings straight. And what do we see in chapter 1? Matthew began his gospel account with a detailed genealogy of Jesus Christ with a very succinct description of the birth story, right? Remember? We're just going back to remembering. Chapter 2, Matthew told us about the visit from the wise men from the east who brought gifts to Jesus of Herod's desire to destroy baby Jesus and the family's flight in and out of Egypt and their ultimate return back to Nazareth because the Christ needed to be a Nazarene. Remember? All right. Good, chapter 3. Matthew tells us of John the Baptist and his public ministry as the forerunner to Jesus, of John's wilderness preaching ministry of repentance, which was highlighted with Christ's baptism himself, and it's said there to fulfill all righteousness. Chapter 3. In chapter 4, Matthew tells us of Jesus' immediate wilderness temptations and of his ultimate success in resisting those schemes of Satan. And then from chapter 5 through 7, we see that Jesus, towards the end of chapter 4, kind of began his public ministry, his public teaching and preaching ministry. And in chapter 5 through 7, Matthew records one of Jesus' many sermons that he preached during his Galilee ministry. Uh, we call this, this one from chapter 5 through 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, which is a representative example of the kind of things Jesus was preaching and teaching during his lengthy Galilean ministry. And then when we get to chapters 8 and 9, Matthew then records a, a, a select handful of miracles that Jesus was doing while he was out preaching and teaching about the kingdom of heaven, such as the cleansing of the leper, or healing Peter's mother-in-law, calming the winds and the waves, restoring sight to the blind, and even claiming authority to forgive the sins of men. To such a great extent, there at the end of chapter 9, listen, it said, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So his teaching and healing ministry was in full bore. He was very active. And then 36, seeing the people, notice, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He saw his brethren, his Jewish brethren, and the pharisaical religious leaders of the day that were leading them astray, and he felt compassion for them. They were shepherdless. And he said to his disciples in 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And when we get to chapter 10, he does exactly that. Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, by name, specifically the 12, to do the very preaching and healing ministry they had seen him doing previously there in the region of Galilee. And then you get to chapter 11. Matthew records that after Jesus sent his disciples out to do the work of ministry, that he too went back out preaching and healing. And Matthew showed how an increasing hostility had begun against Jesus and his message and his disciples. As a matter of fact, you may remember what did Jesus tell his disciples when you're going into the towns and villages? See if you can find a home there that you can 
find some rest in, people who would be accepting of this message. But if not, when you're preaching and they reject the message, what did he say to do? Just wipe the dust off your feet and move on to the next village and to the next town. We tend to have a mindset today that says, no, 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 no. You hunker down and you come up with a more creative way to tell them the same story in a different way, in a different framework or in a different mindset or with, or with props or with smoke and mirrors or we find some other way to keep doing it. Jesus said, no, if they reject the message, keep moving. doesn't kind of fit with our modern ways of thinking of missions and evangelism but nonetheless this is what Jesus said which sets us up for the parables we're here at 11 now in 12 Matthew records a series of ongoing confrontations just one after the other that Jesus is now having regularly with the Pharisees and how the Pharisees went too far and then ultimately blasphemed the Holy Spirit, which was the unpardonable sin. Now, this brings us to chapter 13, our text that we're beginning this morning, where Jesus, again, makes a very marked shift in His public ministry, His public teaching and preaching ministry to those in the nation of Israel or anyone that, that, that was there that had ears to hear. And again, it's here that Jesus begins teaching the public through parables in, in a way that they're not going to be capable of really understanding what he's saying, which is completely different than what we've seen previously. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount. Very straightforward, calling people to come and respond. Here in chapter 13, he's no longer doing that. Here in chapter 13, the first parable is that of the sower and of the soils. And in this sermon, I'm going to preach this sermon in two parts. It's verses 1 all the way through verse 23. Our outline for this sermon is very simple. It's a two-part message, again, from verse 1 all the way down through verse 23. The first three verses, we just simply have a setting, and we'll get to the setting in just a second. Secondly, the parable of the sower and the soils from verses 3 down through verse 9. And then thirdly, the interaction that the, the disciples have with Jesus after he does this teaching uh, of this parable on the soil and the, the, the sower and the soils, and that's from verses 10 through 17. And then lastly, from verse 18 to 23, Jesus gives his disciples the interpretation of this parable. Now today in particular, what we're going to do is we are going to look specifically at this third part of this of the whole, uh, the interaction that the disciples have with Jesus after he initially teaches this first parable. But before we look at this third section, let me just uh, have us look closely at the, the context that leads into this. And so I'm just going to read for us the first nine verses, beginning this parable of the soil, the sower and the soil. Notice. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. 
Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, again, in the first three verses, we have what I described as just a simple setting of the beginning of this next teaching session of Christ. And we see a very similar and very familiar pattern that Jesus follows when he finds himself surrounded by a large crowd, his posturing in such a way so as to teach this large crowd. And we see that again on this occasion. Look again at verse 1. That day Jesus went out of the house and this was the, time, this was the last message we preached in chapter 12. Pastor Matt was teaching when Jesus was in the house and his mother and his brothers and sisters came looking for him. And they said, your mother and brother and sister are outside. They're looking for you. And he said, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters but these? And he pointed to those disciples that were in the house. And so he's leaving that house. That day, Jesus went out of the house. So he's leaving that occasion, coming out of chapter 12. And leaving the house, we see him then sitting by the sea. Sea of Galilee, and large crowds gathered to him. This isn't um, an abnormality. Large crowds were following Jesus at this point in his ministry all the time. Why? Free health care. Simple free health care. And they gathered to him. So he got into a boat. So we see him posturing himself again. Remember in chapter 5, he went up on the, on the mount. There was the large crowd, and he postured him. He went up on the mount because of the crowd, so he postures himself so that he can then preach. And so he's doing a very similar thing. He gets into a boat, he sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. The many things that he speaks to them is our chapter 13. Matthew simply records probably a handful of, of the parables that Jesus taught that day. And these parables that he was teaching to them had things revealed in them concerning mysteries about the kingdom of heaven. And the first one he begins with is the parable of the sower. And I sometimes refer to it as the parable of the sower and the soil uh, because the sower sows in soil. And um, the soil is obviously representative of human hearts. So Jesus, in a very familiar setting, sets himself up, and then he begins teaching in parables. But look at verse 10 again. Notice verse 10. Matthew tells us why Jesus makes this shift. Notice. Now again, we've just read the first nine verses, and notice. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? We see that even the 12 disciples here are perplexed at what has occurred. They're very used to Jesus' public ministry. They're used to his normal standard fare of teaching and preaching concerning the kingdom of heaven, the need for repentance and faith. 
of turning away from yourself and your own sin and turning to God and following Him, becoming a disciple of Christ. They're very familiar with this. So here we find that they are perplexed. Why? Jesus, why are you now transitioning from your normal way of teaching and teaching in parables in such a way you know that they're not going to understand? We're going to see that that's not just me inserting that. This is what they're thinking. Again, Matthew, it seems, is very deliberate in the way he's writing his gospel without question and showing a significant turning point in this public ministry of Christ and his use of parables and his and, and ultimately Matthew's wanting to show his readers that's uh, that's us today some 2,000 years later he's wanting his readers to see and to understand how Jesus's use of parables was really for their the disciples and now our continued teaching and training for our public ministry for our understanding of how God is at work through the preaching of the kingdom of heaven so that they, and now by, extent, by extension us, so that we could grow and deepen in our understanding of theology, of how our labors, how their labors, and those among whom they labor with the preaching of the gospel, how that's to be rightly understood, how it works, and how it doesn't work, which is going to help prevent burnout, which is going to help prevent frustration, which is going to help prevent Wondering why needlessly Uncle so-and-so, Eddie, doesn't respond to the preaching of the gospel every time you sow the seed in his life. The spreading of the gospel seed, the sower, and the response of the soil, we're going to see one of the mysteries is that both their hopes are dependent on the sovereignty of God. And this is a mystery about the kingdom of heaven that requires spiritual eyes to see. And Jesus is now wanting to instruct his 12 very specifically because he's now at a time in their training where he's prepping and preparing them for ongoing ministry after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And they're going to continue on this public ministry of preaching and proclaiming the gospel of heaven. We're going to see that this teaches us something significant regarding the sovereignty of God and his work of salvation. And at the same time, the responsibility of man for their hardness of heart and unwillingness to see and hear and respond to the gospel. Notice verse 11. Jesus answered them, notice this, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, Obviously, the word that's sticking out for us here is this word, granted. And when we go back into our Greek lexicon, didomai, it's to grant someone the opportunity or occasion to do something, to grant, to allow. The disciples asked Jesus, why are you now teaching the people in parables? And Jesus begins his answer by telling them, that his teaching in parables has something to do with their understanding of the mysteries that there are embedded within the kingdom of heaven. And that they, the disciples, have been granted to know such mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But, and notice it says in our passage, it says, but to them 
But to them, Jesus says, it has not been granted. They were not granted access to seeing and understanding His preaching and His teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Douglas O'Connell in the Preaching in the Word series said this in his commentary, In these verses we are unashamedly presented with the tension often given in Scripture between divine sovereignty regarding election and human responsibility regarding rejection. It does not matter with what theological grid you come to this text. We all have to admit the disciples are freely and graciously given the secrets of the kingdom while others are not. That's divine sovereignty in election. And if the gospel has been scattered like seed as Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, then the parable of the sower is perfectly positioned in Matthew's gospel to explain why only a few people respond and enter, while many others do not. Didomai, to grant someone the opportunity or occasion to do something, to grant, to allow. The Apostle Paul used this same word in Acts 11. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift He has given to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I, that I could stand in the way of God. Verse 18, when they heard this, they were quieted, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has didomai, granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And this phrase here in Acts chapter 11, where it says, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life, seems to capture well what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So if we take the same essence of what Paul says with regard to God has granted, did by the Gentiles, a repentance that leads to faith, to you, God has granted you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Someone has to do the granting. I mean, let's be honest, somewhere in Jesus' teaching there, to you it has been granted. Well, who granted it? <laughs> Some... Someone with great authority and might who has that level of, uh, of, of ability has to be the one that's granting a knowledge or the lack thereof. And so it would seem to fit even there very well that it's, it's Paul very clearly articulates God has granted. And so when we understand it seems rightly that this is what Matthew's doing in, in, in recording Jesus' teaching to you God has granted you the ability to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but He has not, God has not granted this to them. God grants to whom He pleases. One of the things the parables does is it gives us, a very, it challenges us to think about the, the size of God we're willing to submit to. Are we willing to submit to a God who 
is in the heavens and does whatsoever he pleases. I mean, really, are we really willing to do that? Meaning, are we willing to think deeply on theology that has that size of a God that's sovereign over all things, even the granting or the lack of granting of understanding and seeing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven or not? Tozier said, the thoughts that you have when you think about God are the most important thoughts you will ever have in your life. Because the thoughts that you have when you think about God will determine not only your life now, but for all eternity as well. So it's important what we think when we think about God. Is he a big God like this, or is he a smaller God that really just kind of wound things up, got things going, went off, and is, who knows what he is doing out there, but he's kind of left it up to us to kind of figure it out, and really it's our free will that manages everything anyways. Matthew's teaching on the parables to his disciples clearly is not articulating that. Jesus is here informing his disciples that the labor of the sower and the yield of the soil both, again, find their hope in the granting of a sovereign and merciful God. And this is of great relief. This is good news. <clears throat> we, all, we have to remember, our God is in the heavens and we are not. Our feet are firmly planted on, on God's green earth. We're finite in our abilities to understand things. And so Jesus is revealing some of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is revealing some of the mystery things that finite minds would not normally have thought of on their own apart from a revelation from the Spirit of God. Allowing us to have such knowledge of what's happening behind the scenes. Paul says something similar to this in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, we're all familiar with this, talking about sowers who plant. I planted, Apollos watered. I think Paul was probably familiar with Jesus' parables. But God granted. God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God, who grants the granting God, the, the God of the didomai, causes the growth. Amen? Are you following? Did, do you feel some of the perplexity the disciples might have felt? Things weren't easy in their life. They were faced with all sorts of rejection. They were loved and hated all at the same time. We love you for your free health care, but we hate you for your message. A very perplexing place for them to be. And Jesus is letting them know, and I'm sure they must have had some thoughts along the way, like, how could there be so many people who are still rejecting the message of Christ? Do they not see that he and now we are doing the very works of, of God? We are doing signs and wonders and miracles. This is why it's proof that all the signs and wonders and miracles in the world can't save anybody. It doesn't matter how miraculous it is. The miraculous is not going to draw somebody's heart and say, Oh my goodness, I just saw this. I believe it doesn't work that way. 
if it works that way, then every single human being that saw Jesus perform the miracles would have been saved. The majority of them weren't, and ultimately they said he does his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. They were not impressed with his mighty miracles. So miracles isn't going to change a heart. How do hearts get changed? How do human hearts get changed? By the gracious and merciful granting of God the Father who opens spiritually blind eyes of our heart to be able to see the beauty of Christ and the truth of the gospel that then irresistibly draws us to himself and we say yes to loving Christ. As robots, never. As humans, yes, who have now been granted something by God mercifully to actually see for the first time what we had never seen before, the beauty of Christ and the sovereignty of God and that we owe nothing to our salvation. Look at verse 12. He says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. So not only does God give to some the capacity to understand and see the secrets and the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and others he does not, but he also lavishes, notice, grace upon grace, <clears throat> he lavishes <clears throat> grace upon grace to those he is granted to see. More, it says, more shall be given. <clears throat> but to those who do not have it, they will even lose the little that they have. What he has shall be taken away from him. This statement no doubt refers to the thousands of people who heard Jesus teaching and saw him perform many miraculous signs as evidence of his divine messiahship, but most of them, having not recognized, were not granted to see even what they were able to see through the clear preaching and teaching of Christ and the disciples has now been what? Even the little they had has now been taken away. And he's teaching them now in parables so that they cannot see. They were exposed to God incarnate, and yet they rejected him. And in my statement there, I, like you, hopefully you feel the tension. You feel the tension? <clears throat> I've been talking about the sovereignty of God, the 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 granting of God. And then I turn around and I say, yet they rejected Him. And this is where sometimes when you have conversation with people, they want to wrangle over words. We have to be comfortable with tension. I mentioned that we're finite creatures. Our feet are firmly planted on God's green earth floating in space. We have limitations. We have to be okay with the reality that, guess what? People who are born with a sin nature, they do freely exactly what they want to do. No one's making them do anything. They have a master. The Bible lets us know this. Their master is Satan. They don't think that. They don't have those thoughts. That's a spiritual reality thing. They're not in, in touch with spiritual reality stuff. They don't understand the Bible. They, they don't have eyes to see, so they don't know this. But they're doing exactly what they want to do from their nature, which is a sin nature. Unless God steps in 
and merciful grants them a repentance that leads to faith, like he did the Gentiles there in Acts 11, they will continue doing exactly what they want to do, how they want to do it, when they want to do it, and nobody's going to tell them differently. They're acting out of their will exactly and perfectly, and thus they will be held accountable for their choices. It's just the way it works. And so they were exposed to all this. They rejected him, either by direct opposition or by indifferent neglect. Either way, it doesn't matter. Either way, they said no to King Jesus, and because they refused to receive the divine light that shined on them, the little they had was then taken away from them, and thus they drift deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness. Have you seen how this works in people's lives? Just make observation in a general way of people who are unbelievers. Nice people. I'm not saying that they're, they're not all Adolf Hitlers, right? No, they're, they're just, they're, they're your neighbors. You're, there could be a grandmother, a grandfather. They're generally nice people from a human perspective, but they're enemies of God because they're born of the sin nature, rebellious against God. God can't look upon sin, etc. You know these things. Okay? But these very nice people tend to drift deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness. You can go from in the decade of somebody's life, and it's typically more obvious in young people's lives, from the age of, let's say, 20 to 25 to 30 to 35, just notice the drifting that tends to happen in their thinking and in their living, where when they were in their 20s to 25s, they had a certain kind of theology, they believed certain things, and then from 25 to 35, their exposure to the world, the ways of the world, the doctrines of demons, the absence thing from the church, etc., etc., or they've drifted into a more liberal church. Just notice, it tends to happen. There's a drifting away from, from, a, from one level of darkness to a deeper level of, level of spiritual darkness, and they start even now over here rejecting and saying things that they once used to believe they don't believe anymore. But we still love Jesus. But now it's a Jesus of their own imagination. It's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. It's a Jesus of their own imagination. If you haven't observed that in a general sense with just people in general, you're just not paying attention because I've seen it. I could start naming names. I've seen it so many times in so many individuals. I could start naming names, and I love them all. And I would that God would grant them an ability to truly see... Because, you know, when you truly see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you right now, it changes everything. And so next week, when we get to the actual teaching of the, the parable, the first half, and then the explanation of it, we're going to be dealing with these individuals. They hear the word, oh, they responded, and they looked on the outside like they had something that was working. These parables, Jesus is instructing his disciples, and he's teaching them something that's a profound mystery about the realities of what's happening in the soil. And we've all struggled with these kinds of issues, without question. I'm sure we have. So next week we'll get more into that intricate aspect and, and how the evidence of a seed truly planted. He, he mentions it, some 100, some 60, some 30. He mentions the reality of genuine, sustainable Spiritual growth in the lives of soil. We'll get there next week. It's important. These are very important realities and truths that the disciples then needed to know. So he shifted. Jesus knew he wasn't going to be around forever. He knew his time was soon approaching. And so he shifts from 
clearly teaching to teaching in parables so that his disciples can grow and deepen in their understandings of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Notice verse 13. As they drift deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness because of their refusal to receive. 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables. <clears throat> because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. So the reason Jesus was teaching them now with parables was due to the fact that God had not granted them to understand the little they had, which was the sowing, the preaching of the kingdom of God. And now that Jesus is teaching in parables, again, that little that they had is now taken away because, because as the prophet Isaiah said, and if you notice how many times Matthew goes back to the Old Testament prophets from chapter 1, we didn't have time to rehearse them all from chapter 1. He's very in touch with and intuitive to the prophets. The predictive prophesying of prophets who said things and then find their fulfillment in reality in Jesus. And then highlighting that, again, to be a, what's happening here is something God said a long time ago that was going to happen. Because like the prophet Isaiah said, while seeing they don't see and while hearing they don't hear, and they don't understand, which again, Matthew demonstrates very well of how God in his decreative will has already set this reality in motion in advance so that we might know and understand and rightly both fear him and worship him now in both time and then for all eternity. Notice verse 14, how he pulls in Isaiah. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being filled Who's their case? The unbelievers who have been following Jesus around. They had heard the preaching. They had heard the teaching. They loved the free medical care, but they were not interested in ultimately blaspheming. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. We see here that Jesus cites these verses as a biblical pattern that has now been fulfilled in his own ministry. Matthew is showing this reality of and how the people to whom Jesus and his disciples had preached, they kept on hearing, did not understand. They kept on seeing all of the things that Jesus and they were doing, the miraculous things that Jesus did, but they did not perceive him to be their Messiah. Why? Well, he simply says, dull hearts, ears that couldn't hear, and closed eyes. Now, see this word here in verse 15? Otherwise. Otherwise. Otherwise, they would see. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes. Otherwise, they would hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And do what? 
and return. Another way of saying repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of turning away from their own life and sin and returning to the only true and living and glorious God who is now provided for them Messiah in the flesh. Now, what does Jesus help them understand through the use of parable of the sower and the soil? One of the mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus is helping them understand. And he tells the parable, they went out to sow, the seed fell, this soil, this soil, this soil, this happened, this happened. What's one of the mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus is trying to help them understand so that as they do ministry, they're not utterly frustrated forever? Did am I? The granting of God. We as sowers, we go out and we sow and we sow freely. And you've heard me say this, I sow with a whosoever will gospel. I throw that seed as broadly as I can and say whosoever will come, come. Respond today. Today is the day of salvation. I know not who the elect of God are, only God knows. I'm going to let God be God and I'm just going to be me. It's easier to do that. I would encourage you to do likewise. Even with your thinking with regard to these issues. Let's not put ourselves in the place of God. Let's just recognize that God, His Spirit, gave words to disciples to write. And so we, because of the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God, sola scriptura, we submit to it because we know that as men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote from God. And God was letting his disciples then and us now know something about the mysteries of the kingdom, and that is unless God moves in the seed that's planted, in the soil of the heart, that soil is not going to produce the 160 or 30. We're going to get there next time. It may spring up, it may look good, it may do different things, chokes out, we'll get there next week. Are you following me? One of the mysteries that he is teaching them is this, and never forget, never forget, verse 16, never forget how blessed you are. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. He's speaking this to his disciples, but by extension, is this not true of us? If you're here this morning having truly put your faith and trust in Christ alone, Never forget how blessed of God you have truly been because you do these things that are mentioned here. You see, you hear, you understand. You've returned, you repented. I've mentioned this before, but we of all people are the most blessed human beings on planet Earth. If you said, hey, give up your faith and you can have the wealth of Elon Musk. Thank you, but no, not interested. Why? The value and the worth of the free forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ alone far surpasses any wealth that this world could ever offer us. We are the most privileged human beings on planet Earth. Blessed are your eyes. Blessed you are because your eyes see. Never forget this and never fail to render glory to God for it. Let's not go too far in accusing God of somehow being a, a cosmic something or other. You know, just, no, listen, he's holy, holy, 
thrice holy. And this should cause us to have a greater fear for Him and a greater capacity to worship Him alone. Amen? It should. If it doesn't, then we need to check our hearts. Have they truly seen the beauty of Christ in the face, the beauty of God in the face of Christ? We have to ask ourselves that question. And how do we know that we are so blessed? Listen, he said, truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. But you did. To hear what you hear and did not hear it, but you did. We are blessed with the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Savior of God's people. We are blessed indeed. Now, I want you to come back next week and we're going to finish this teaching on this parable of the soil, the sower in the soil. We're going to put all this together that we can walk away and having learned something about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was teaching them for us because there's ministry to do out there, folks. The church is here to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4. That's why the church exists, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The church does not exist to be a place of soft evangelism on Sunday morning. To, to So you just bring your friends in. I'm just going to give them a little hallelujah soft gospel. Churches for the church. Because let me tell you, people need the Lord. You're to be equipped to do the work of ministry. So listen, when we leave these doors today and we go out there, there is people out there to whom we should have a ministry to. Let's never forget this. This is why we're still here. There's one great commission. It's still, it's hadn't changed. It hasn't changed. Church, let's be the church. Amen. He's revealed some mysteries here. Let's embrace these mysteries. And now let's go scatter seed. Whosoever will come, praying that God would bring them all. Bring them all, Lord. Bring them all. But if, if none come, do we give up? No. You keep planting, and we keep planting.